Support for this show comes from Factor. Even with the best intentions, it can be hard to eat well. It takes time and effort to plan and cook nutritious, delicious meals. But Factor's ready-to-eat meals can take away some of the work by delivering pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals right to your door. With options like keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to help you glide through your day. You can head to factormeals.com slash switched50 and use code switched50 to get 50% off. That's code switched50 at factormeals.com slash switched50 to get 50% off. Welcome to Switch John Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. Charles, at the end of last year, a song shot up Spotify's viral charts to number one. And it's an unlikely entrant. It's got a kind of dreamy groove and a chorus sung half in English and half in Japanese. Let's listen to a little bit. This is strange because it sounds like a Philly record label in the 80s produced a late disco hit in Japan. And I don't know what that's doing on the charts. It's Miki Matsubara's Stay With Me from 1979. It's an example of city pop. And to answer your question, why is this Japanese genre from the 70s and 80s suddenly surging in popularity in, in the United States and around the world, we need to bring in a special guest. It's friend of the show, assistant editor at Pitchfork, Kat Zhang, who recently wrote The Endless Life Cycle of Japanese City Pop. Kat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I feel like this won't have a simple answer, but can you help us understand why Japanese pop songs from the 70s and 80s are, are suddenly all over Spotify, all over YouTube? Like, why is this sound suddenly in everyone's ears? So this most recent surge of interest in Japanese city pop music, which is like music from Japan's boom era, where they were just flourishing, there was the second biggest economy, they were kind of living a luxurious lifestyle. So music from this era became popular on TikTok because anime lovers and like Japanophiles generally um, started using the videos in their TikToks. But its real peak happened in December because young Japanese Americans would show the songs to their moms who kind of grew up with that era of music. And then their moms would light up in recognition and sing along to the song as if they were kind of doing karaoke. And, and they would record the whole interaction and people just got so much joy out of these moms kind of reliving their youth. So that's why it shot up to the number one of the Spotify viral charts at the end of 2020. But City Pop actually has a long history of virality. For a long time, it was known as, or it's still known as YouTube Recommendation Core because there's one song in particular that's a city pop hit that just keeps on appearing in people's YouTube recommendations. Oh, right. This is Plastic Love by Maria Takeuchi. Uh, 
Maybe to help ground the conversation, it would be helpful to get a sense of what does city pop sound like? What are its defining characteristics? So city pop borrows from a lot of American genres of music. At the time, like Tokyo was becoming this global city. Japan's economy was doing really well. They were, you know, making cutting edge technology and all of this kind of factors into the sound, which feels super kind of dreamy and luxurious. The lyrics are often kind of nostalgic and about like love that isn't quite attainable or, you know, has kind of like a city feel, which is why it's called city pop. As you might be able to hear in the Miki Mitsubara song, you know, it borrows from funk, it borrows from disco. There are often some really bright horns. It's very slick. And personally, I think this palette that we hear in city pop is not something that is like unfamiliar to Western audiences. Personally, I think that if you're a fan of Carly Rae Jepsen, like city pop should be very instantaneously kind of recognizable to you. Or even if you're a fan of like Doja Cat's Say So or something like that, you know, there is a, an an 80s revival is already so big within the kind of music landscape. So it's, it's just very easy. It's, it's a very likable, kind of sound. I totally agree. And and one of the things I loved about reading your article was just being introduced to all of these songs and artists that I, I'd, I'd never really heard before. And, and hearing the different facets of all these musical styles you're saying pop up in these city tracks. So I, I thought we could just listen to a few of these to kind of get our heads around the, the, the sonic landscape of city pop, which, you know, goes from that kind of upbeat disco uh, vibe of Stay With Me that we were just listening to. You mentioned the influence of yacht rock, like Hall and Oates. And I can hear that in a track like Businessman Part One by Makoto Matsushita. feel like we're on our boat right now. It's great. You mentioned funk, Cat, and I hear that influence strongly in a track like Marry Go Round by Tatsuro Yamashita. Tatsuro Yamashita is considered the king of city pop, and you can hear these kind of funky bass lines everywhere within the genre. You know, this when I listen to this, I, I think of the the connection you drew between the the Japanese economic boom of the 70s and 80s and this music. It sounds expensive. I mean, I hear a studio full of like state-of-the-art equipment populated with like dozens of musicians. It 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 just sounds rich to me. Literally, literally rich. <laughs> yeah, and and they were studio wizards and a lot of this stuff is so masterfully crafted. And then you think about the city pop iconography and it's all about, you know, being at the beach, palm trees, expensive cars. There's something so blissful just even looking at the cover images. 
Let's listen to one more track you mentioned. It's by Henri. It's called Goodbye Boogie Dance. And when I hear this, I hear Earth, Wind, and Fire. I hear all sorts of influences. Let's let's hit play. We've got horns. We've got strings. I, I can I can hear how this is capturing the the excitement of of, of urban life in say Tokyo in in the 1980s. It's it's all there for me. And if you look at the YouTube comments and a lot of city pop videos, the people will comment like, "Oh, I feel like I'm in 80s Tokyo, and I'm like driving in my car, and like the wind is blowing my hair." And then suddenly there's a pause, <laughs> and it's like, "Oh, wait, I'm 18, and I live in America. Like I've never had that experience before." <laughs> okay, I love that. It's really telling that this music is having a moment based on nostalgia. Clearly, it was extremely popular at one moment, but. These are new sounds to me. I'm just discovering them. What happened to City Pop? Where did it go? So if you watch any sort of man on the street interview with like average people in Tokyo and you ask them about City Pop, they have like no idea what you're talking about. Not necessarily because they don't recognize the music, but just because a lot of like one of the most popular city pop songs, Plastic Love by Maria Takeuchi, when it was released, it wasn't really that popular. And then, you know, after city pop's heyday, it kind of disappeared because it was like music for yuppies. And it was <laughs> uh, just it was just a little out of touch because mm. after Japan's boom period, it entered what is called the lost decade. And basically it went into recession. And so all of this kind of wealth and luxuriousness just felt not right for the climate. And so it kind of faded into obscurity for a while. And then in more recent years has become very popular in the West. And after becoming popular in the West and, you know, in a variety of other countries as well, then more Japanese people, I think, are kind of attuned to this and the kind of global appetite for it. Mm. Yeah. And I want to talk more about that, the sort of surging popularity of, of this music. But I also found this a fascinating part of the story because, you know, like Charlie, I wasn't really familiar with city pop. If I was familiar with Japanese music, it was Japanese music of the 90s, of that economic downturn. And it was like pretty antithetical to everything we've been hearing in city pop. I think of uh, bands like Boredoms that I was, you know, obsessed with when, when I was in high school. And it's not lush. It's not orchestrated. It is like angry and punky and rough around the edges. Wow, this is like uh I had no friends in high school, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there, there. I know you I know it's what you're all thinking. All to say, I was really excited to discover city pop and this completely other side of Japanese popular music tradition. And yeah, Charlie and I were not alone. Everyone is suddenly seems to be becoming aware of this music. Like you mentioned this song, Plastic Love, and this seems to be a sort of key piece in the puzzle of why city pop has become so popular.
when I read about it in your article, I had this 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 immediate trigger of of seeing that thumbnail in my YouTube recommendation algorithm. Like every time I logged on for I think a period of months. Why did Plastic Love by Maria Takoechi be, become this YouTube viral hit with, I think, as of this writing, over 65 million views? Like, what what is it about this song in particular? You know, it's really hard to tell. There's like a long kind of backstory to it. It's not clear who was the first uploader of this song because I think people tried to upload it and it kept on getting struck down by the record label in Japan. And then mm. suddenly... One person broke through, one person being like a random teenager in South America who I interviewed recently. And the the cover art to Plastic Love that is attached to the YouTube video is not actually the cover art that was originally released with the single. And the photographer of it had no idea that it was going to be associated with that album cycle or that project. But somehow the combination of the song and the image has really stuck with people. It's just a black and white headshot of Maria Takeuchi, and she looks very youthful and kind of radiant. And, you know, it, it's looks it's like no matter what angle you look, she's always kind of looking at you a little coyly. <laughs> um, I talked to the photographer who took that photo, who, you know, who, who wasn't, who didn't even know that that photo was going to be so popular. And he said that they had taken it in the 80s in Hollywood, and she was going for like this classic Hollywood look at the time. Mm. Then there's also the fact that the song is just like really good. It has all of the kind of hallmarks of a of a beautiful kind of wistful city pop song. So it's just the dreaminess of the thumbnail, the the beauty of the song the humor of some of the YouTube comments, which are, you know, still all about like having nostalgia for 80s Japan, even though you never lived there, all of that plays a factor. And then there's another key context, which is there's just a lot of Japanese music from the 70s and 80s that has a surprisingly large YouTube following, like Japanese new age music, electronic music, and there's not a clear reason for, for why. Support for this show comes from Factor. Tired of grocery shopping, of meal prep, the dread of what's in your freezer when you're too tired to cook? Then you might just want to check out Factor. Their ready-to-eat meal delivery is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved all ready to go in just two minutes. Factor has 35 chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals to choose from every week, including options like keto, calorie smart, protein plus, vegan, and more. Craving pancakes for breakfast? Want a smoothie for a midday snack? No matter what time of day or type of meal, Factor's got you covered. Factor let me try out some of their meals, and I was a huge fan of the garlic and herb roasted mushrooms with olive oil, mashed potatoes, roasted green beans, and tomatoes. It was super easy to prepare, and it tasted delicious. In addition to ready-to-eat meals, they have cold-pressed juices, smoothies, energy bites, extra protein, veggie sides, and more. Head to factormeals.com slash switched50 and use code SWITCHED50 to get 50% off. 
That's code SWITCHED50 at factormeals.com slash SWITCHED50 to get 50% off. YouTube is not the only place that City Pop has a resurgence. There's also, you report, an important role for compilation albums from labels like Light in the Attic uh, in City Pop's resurgence. What role did they play? Light in the Attic, which is a reissue label based in Seattle, just gave people like a formal way to access city pop music that wasn't off of YouTube, that wasn't like ripped and kind of illegally uploaded. You know, these Japanese record companies were very kind of vigilant about knocking down uploads that that went up on YouTube. And so with an official compilation album with with the rights cleared and everything, like people had a kind of a more formal and official introduction and maybe a kind of a more cohesive one as well. But the thing with that compilation album is they actually started work on it around 2014, 2015. One of the curators had gone to Tokyo and and found some of these records at Tower Records. And so they had no clue that this was, you know, becoming popular on YouTube until much later, until much further into the project. So it, it took a long time because it was really difficult to get the rights cleared. But and it's funny how its release kind of coincided with this this like boom in popularity of city pop. Kat, you also cite an an important precedent for the kind of rediscovery of city pop, and that's a a, a concept and idea known as Wamono. Can you help explain that? Break it down and and why it might be related to the rediscovery of city pop? Yeah, so I think Wamonos just translates to like vintage Japanese music. And I was kind of thinking, well, like where, what's the starting point of the city pop revival? It had to probably start in Japan, especially because, you know, a lot of Japanese music isn't that accessible. So there had to be someone inside kind of making it accessible to people outside of Japan. And so basically Japanese DJs, started becoming interested in old kind of like disco and funk records and like just general vintage Japanese music and started incorporating it to their into their sets. There is a is a compilation album called Wimono A to Z where you can feel like you feel like you are getting some of the influences that will later kind of percolate into City Pop. Yeah, your reference to this Wamono A to Z compilation album was was kind of like uh, a light bulb moment for me because it, it it shows that Japanese artists weren't just in assimilating American influences but incorporating their their own traditional forms of music. Like on the first track by Toshiko Yokonawa, you hear a koto laid on top of these disco groups. Then, on a touch of Japanese tone by Takeo Yamashita, you hear the traditional Japanese flute, the shakuachi, on top of this kind of undulating funk group. One of the big takeaways that I had from your piece relates to that YouTube comment that you were talking about earlier, 
the American teenager imagining themselves driving through Tokyo. You state that city pop's popularity in the United States probably has a lot more to say about how Americans view Japan than Japanese culture itself. Could you unpack that a bit? So like I mentioned before, I think people in Japan, if you kind of talk to them about it, I mean, besides like record collectors and people who are like more steeped in the music industry. But if, if you talk to like the average person in Japan, like there's no huge like city pop craze within Japan. And a lot of this, at least in recent years, is more kind of like Western influenced. And, you know, people have said that the appeal of city pop is kind of like it's it's all of the things that are familiar to you but it operates at a slight remove and becomes a little kind of exotic or more interesting because the Japanese offers this element of like foreignness to it and gives you a, the possibility to kind of project what you want to. You know, it's also, it's just like, it's less quote unquote basic to say like, I'm listening to like Japanese pop music from the eighties. And it is to be like, I'm listening to like, um, like American pop music or, you know, whatever. Every time we're dealing with music from another country and there's like kind of a history of the relationship between that country and the U.S., I think we got to look to that kind of historical context and see like what what about this music makes me identify with it? What about my own assumptions makes me identify with it? And in the U.S., there's a lot of Japanophilia, a lot of people mm. who would self call themselves weebs or huh. or identify with like otaku culture in America, but also in you know a variety of other countries too. And so that is, I think, part of the context and the appreciation for this music. There seems to be a, a larger sort of cultural translation and mistranslation scaffolding that our ears are interpolating this music through. Yes. And I'm definitely, I don't mean to say that people who like City pop are doing so for insidious reasons or that it's not genuine or that no one has, you know, that you don't have the right to like city pop. Like it's a very likable music and it's extremely well produced. And, you know, there are a lot of great things going for it. But with all music, you know, all music is subject to kind of a, a sort of politics. And that, mm. too, is very interesting to unpack. I totally agree, Kat. And, and that's why I appreciate you know, you titling this piece The Endless Life Cycle of Japanese City Pop because it, it, you do paint this picture of it being this exchange across borders, back and forth, back and forth, and, and perhaps, you know, mistranslated with every exchange. But perhaps that's also why it's so compelling. And uh, uh, an important part of the story is the way that contemporary musicians are incorporating the sound of this city pop revival into their own original tracks. And you provide some really compelling examples, like an unreleased track from Young Nudie featuring Playboy Cardi called Pissy Pamper. Something I've always wanted to say on this show. Which samples a city pop track from 1980 by Mai Yamane called Tasogari. And you also point out that Tyler, the creator, samples another Tatsuro Yamashita track, Fragile, Thank you for your love. 
thank you for the heart. On Gone, Gone, slash, thank you from his album, Igor. This is kind of, this was not mentioned in my piece, but uh, there's a musicologist named Ken McLeod at the University of Toronto who has written a really interesting paper about the, the concept of the Afro samurai and the specific kinship that like hip hop artists and kind of black fans in general may have to Japanese culture that I think is worth exploring in the context of like rappers using city pop. But also city pop has just a really long or a decently long history of being sampled in other music, Hmm. you know, in the early 2010s in Vaporwave and Future Funk songs offshoot of Vaporwave. Kat, you point out that it's it's having kind of a revival among live bands in Japan and even across Asia. Yeah, if you, you know, if you go on YouTube, there are actually a lot of playlists that are like Indonesian city pop, Korean city pop, Taiwanese city pop, and various bands who are kind of affiliated, who are upheld as like examples of their country's city pop, even if maybe they wouldn't list themselves as such. But they are all influenced by people like Tatsura Yamashita. So this includes like the Taiwanese indie band Sunset Roller Coaster or the Indonesian band Ikubaru. There's also a Japanese singer who is in Korea named Yukika, who had this kind of uh, concept of like a retro girl based on city pop. I loved getting introduced to this Taiwanese band Sunset Roller Coaster, and I felt like they were really channeling the city pop's sound on a song like Burgundy Red. All of this suggests to me that city pop isn't going anywhere. Kat, what do you think is the future of this sound? You know, I'm not sure because it is it has its origin in the 80s. So I think people are just going to keep on listening to what's been uploaded online. And I know that Warner Japan ha- like released a music video for Plastic Love like so many like, two years ago. So, so many years after it was originally released. So I think people will just kind of continue like delving into this nostalgia aspect. I think in general, nostalgia is just a huge theme of TikTok and YouTube and the internet Mm. in general. So Kat, finding this music through the world of TikTok and the Spotify viral charts to going into these Japanese crate digging cultures, how has your relationship to city pop changed through your research? You know, I'm not really sure that it has because I like I came into city pop as an observer. Like I knew a lot of other people like my coworkers and my friends were really into it. But I I was very interested in like kind of digging beneath the surface and being like, what is with this identification? And now I have sort of tracked all these different kind of historical and social factors that are involved in this. I'm still just like this is this is really fun music, but it's not something that I'm going to make like my heart and soul. There's still kind of this sort of scholarly distance with it, but it does make me think 
a lot more about the dynamics underlying, like how we kind of consume this music and the also the geopolitical aspects as well. I, I kind of mentioned in my article that at the time that, you know, city pop was coming out of Japan and Japan was experiencing this economic boom, there's also a lot of anxiety in the U.S. about this kind of looming Asian presence and whether Japan would take over the U.S. And, you know, there are a lot of kind of Japanese cars coming into the U.S. Uh, Japanese companies had acquired, you know, Hollywood production companies and the Rockefeller Center. And I think the Senate even voted like 92 to zero to condemn like Japanese trade practices as unfair and kind of curb Japanese imports. The way this relates to contemporary like Asian American discourse is that like, for example, when, you know, workers in the U.S. were really concerned about the a Japanese takeover, there was a Chinese-American man named Vincent Chin who was actually murdered by two auto plant workers because they thought that he was Japanese. And so a lot of times that like fear of kind of a, a superpower abroad means that the people at home are affected. And that's kind of the rhetoric that we have with China now. Even with TikTok, it's like, you know, TikTok is a Chinese company. Like, what does that mean? We're seeing a lot of xenophobia in the U.S. And so it's been illuminating trying to also study the way that like a music abroad somehow is also relevant to like what it means to be an Asian American person like in the mm. U.S. Wow. Kat, this is why I think we enjoy your writing. It is both a deep dive into music and then emerges on the other side with insights about why we care so much about music and as you know i would say 90 percent of the time that has everything to do with our identities and the way we relate to each other kat thank you so much for joining us it's been such a pleasure to talk to you we'll put links to kat's pitchfork features the endless life cycle of japanese city pop and what is asian american music really in our show notes kat thanks so much for being here thanks for having me Switched on Bop is produced by Nate Sloan, me, Charlie Harding, and we're engineered by Ben Montoya this week. And Jolie Myers is the intrepid producer behind this episode. Illustrations by Iris Gottlieb, social media, Abby Barr. Our executive producers are Nishant Kurwa and Hannah Rosen, and we're a member of the Vox Media Podcast Network and a production of Vulture. You can listen to Switched on Pop on Apple Podcast apps, Spotify, anywhere else you get podcasts, or our website, www.switchonpop.com. We'll be back every Tuesday with a piping hot, fresh new episode for you, and we'll make a playlist of our favorite city pop songs to share with you on Spotify. Hit us up on the Twitter, on the Instagram, at Switched on Pop. We love talking to you, even when you disagree with us, especially when you disagree with us. It's the best. It's the best. The listener posted a transcription of the J. Cole drumbeat on the climb back because they wanted to prove us wrong like that. It doesn't get any better than that. So we look forward to seeing you there. Uh, I believe that only leaves us to say thanks Thank you for, for listening. listening. Support for this show came from Factor. You don't need me to tell you that finding nourishing food that actually tastes good can be easier said than done. Factor might be able to help. With Factor, you can get fresh, 
never frozen, chef crafted, and dietitian approved meals sent right to your home, ready to go in just two minutes. Factor provides no prep, no mess meals. That means no cooking or cleanup needed. Head to factormeals.com slash switched50 and use code switched50 to get 50% off. That's code switched50 at factormeals.com slash switched50 to get 50% off.